Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. This episode of Ideas Matter features the lecture, The New Radicals, Conservatism as Counterculture, the eighth in our series Culture Wars Then and Now. The lectures were recorded at the Academy Summer School, and each talk explores some of the intellectual, cultural, social and political trends that shaped the culture wars. In this lecture, starting with the 1992 declaration of a culture war by Republican Pat Buchanan, we look at the period during in which the absence of a coherent economic and political plan meant that modern conservatism found a new existential mission in the culture wars. The lecturer is Dr. Nikos Sotirakopoulos, a lecturer in sociology and criminology at the University of York and the author of the book The Rise of Lifestyle Activism, From the New Left to Occupy. So, usually when we think about a counterculture, uh, we think about the left. Or we think about hippies with dreadlocks listening to Bob Dylan and reading Jack Kerouac. The last thing we think about when we think about the counterculture is conservative men in, in suits. But actually, throughout their history, many conservative and, and many right-wing movements, they were in their essence countercultural movements. And what do I mean by that? They were movements that, while trying to save the legacy of the past that they consider is worth saving, they would oppose central cultural and social themes of its era. Now, when I say that the movement is a countercultural, this is a neutral term. It might be good, it might be bad. So, for example, you've had countercultural movements that were even worse than the culture they were attacking. And you had other countercultural movements that brought a breath of fresh air. Now, by understanding how right wing movements have been and even today are in a way counterculture, we can understand these movements better, but perhaps more importantly, we can understand in a better way this new kind of right-wing movements that we see nowadays. In the United States, for example, people around Trump or the so-called alt-right, but also in Europe and the so-called new populist movements in Europe. So throughout its history, the right has mostly been a reaction against something. So it has not been Quite often, it has not been a movement with a positive, specific program, but it has been a movement as a reaction to something. Let's think, for example, of the original right, the royalists in the French parliament. They were against the French Revolution. Or think about fascism. Fascism was a reaction against Bolshevism. Or think about the new right in the United States in the 1970s and the 1980s. What were they? A reaction against the new left. So, in a way, the adjective reactionary is not even an offensive term towards the right. Actually, many people in the right today embrace this term and they call themselves neo-reactionaries. So, why do I claim that conservatism from the beginning had this countercultural element? Let's think about Edmund Burke. What was this element in the Enlightenment project that he was uncomfortable with? It was the issue, it was the themes of rationality, of individualism, and of materialism. And why did Burke did not like these themes? Because they were a threat to the cultural values that were so important for conservatism. Tradition, hierarchy, and identity. 
So with the advancement of the enlightenment, of democracy, and of the, of the bourgeois society, the moral order of centuries seemed to be crumbling. The spontaneous order of the market made history uncontrollable and unpredictable. And now if you're about tradition, this is not good news. Because back in the day, the, the, the figures of virtue was the man with the sword or the virtuous leader of the tribe or of the community. But now, the pillars on which society was standing was the merchant, the industrialist, the banker, or the masses of the proletarian workers. And this was something that many romantics and many conservatives were quite uncomfortable with. And this reactionary view against the bourgeois industrial life is captured very well by Hermann Esse's anti-hero in his novel Steppenwolf. So in that novel, the anti-hero, Harry, at some point, and this novel was written on the 1920s, which, as we saw in other lectures, was a time of, of, of quite importance. So the anti-hero at some point says, quote, I'd rather feel burned by a diabolic pain than to live in these sanely temperate surroundings. A wild desire flares up in me for intense emotions, sensations, a rage against the whole toneless, flat, normal, sterilized life and a wish to destroy something, perhaps a warehouse, a cathedral, or myself, and to commit outrageous follies, end quote. Now, personally, this quote reminds me of Tyler Durden in Fight Club, because it's the same theme, that this is a boring life out there, there is no meaning, so nihilistic violence is probably the way out. And it's not a coincidence that Tyler Durden was a countercultural hero for the anti-globalization left when Fight Club first came out, but in the last years, Tyler Durden has been a countercultural hero for the new right and for the neo-reactionaries and for the alt-right. But more on that in a second. Now, going back to the 20th century, the ex this extreme reaction to this anti-heroic modern life was, of course, fascism. And I think the intellectual who best captures the spirit of fascism and someone who has been has been named by a commentator as the most right-wing figure in history, was the philosopher and writer Baron Julius Evola. Now, why is Evola important? Because Evola has been influential to the rise of fascism. Evola has been influential also, though, to post-World War II fascist movements and many identitarian movements today. So if you want to understand Evola, you can just see the titles of his book. His most famous book is called A Revolt Against the Modern World. And one of the books he wrote in the 60s is called Ride the Tiger, a Survival Manual for the Aristocrats of the Soul. So the underlying theme and the underlying question that Evola asks is how can we live as heroes in these very unheroic times? And the main problem Evola has with our era is that we are too rational. Evola says there are two levels. The one is the eternal level, which is the good, the sacred, and the other is this worldly level, which is the world of rationality, the bourgeois world. But rather than talking about Evola's, let's say, fascist time, I think the most interesting reading of Evola is see his work after the Second World War. Because in a way, you can read Evola as a reactionary alter ego of the Frankfurt School. And why I'm saying this? Because Evola and the Frankfurt School actually are dealing with the same things. 
they are criticizing this society where we haven't got any more this opportunity to be ourselves. And they, they, their comments are on the same things, that we have mundane jobs, that there's too much materialism, that there's too much consumerism. Even if you see the, the structure of the books of Adorno, for example, and of Evola, the thematology is the same. Evola even has this whole section about how jazz is, uh, is, uh, is decadent. So they agree on one thing, that this world does not let our urges of our inner psyche to be exposed. And they also agree in one thing, that this world, including the political system that supports it, needs to be destroyed. Of course, the answer for the new left is a social system that is not very clear, something like a new type of maybe socialism. The solution for Evola is a new type of tribal caste system where the aristocrats and the heroes are on top and everyone else is following them. But also, Evola around 1960s is very surprised with something. And he's very surprised with how some of the marginal countercultural movements that he was related to in the 1920s, such as Dada or such as Letrism, the development of these movements was becoming central in the counterculture. And this counterculture was becoming mainstream. So Evola was happy with that. So he said, I can see this movement as a revolt against reason. Reason is the main problem of the modern world. Therefore, there is some hope in this counterculture, even if it's a counterculture that comes from these kind of decadent, unheroic hippies. So, Evola did not live enough to see postmodernism, but we could say that definitely he was an early postmodernist. And many of these kind of anti rational rightist movements had some element of postmodernism in them. And let me give you an example his views on race. So, Evola says race is not only biological, it also has to do with your soul. Therefore, someone could be belonging to an inferior race, but his soul could belong to a higher race. Therefore, you could have a Jew who could self-identify as an Aryan. And Evola says, yeah, that, that's a possibility. And if that reminds you of something, the idea that it's not about who you are biologically, but if it's how you self-identify, then the parallels are obvious. Now, Evola's revolt against the modern alienating world had that had been quite influential to many movements in Europe. And one of these movements is the new right in France, the Nouvelle Droit. Now, Nouvelle Droit was never very significant politically, but it was significantly ideologically because it was the first movement that brought into the surface this idea of right-wing identitarianism. Again, when we say identity politics, the first thing that comes to mind is the left, but the new big thing in identity politics is nowadays the right. And also, identitarianism is the movement that has influenced the alt-right in the United States. And by the way, when I speak about the alt-right, I mean the actual alt-right, not like how Guardian thinks that everyone who is on the right of Jeremy Corbyn is the, is the alt-right. So the movement, the leader of the new right, is a guy called Alain de Benoit, who is a very interesting in terms of his eclectic readings. Because he's not only influenced by people like Evola, but he's reading Gramsci, he's reading the Frankfurt School, and he's reading the Situationists. And this is why Angela Nagel, in her book, calls these people Gramscians of the right. And one of the strongest identitarian groups in Europe 
has been a, a group called Generation Identity in France. And its manifesto has the very interesting subtitle, A Declaration of War Against the 68ers. So here is the interesting phenomenon. You have a movement that rises against the counterculture of the 1960s and presents itself as the new counterculture. And what do the right-wing identitarians say? They say that we live in a very decadent world, and who is to blame? Our fathers, the generation of our fathers. But it's an unwritten rule that if the main aim of your life is not to be like your father, sooner or later, you end up being exactly like your father. <laughs> and this is what happened with identitarians. Because they actually agree on many things with their fathers. They agree, for example, that the world out there is very bleak, that the world out there is doing things to us, and we're passive kind of subjects of these things. They agree that we have created monsters that have now been completely out of our control. For example, right-wing identitarians are very big on environmental issues. They consider that capitalism has destroyed the environment. Therefore, any spiritual proper identitarian movement that puts forward culture and identity needs to have a very strong environmental agenda. Now, this is the situation in Europe. What is the situation in the United States? Could we hope that there, there is a conservative movement which is way more rational, way more ready to defend the values of the Enlightenment? If this is the case, you're going to be disappointed. Now, already from the 1960s, the philosopher and novelist Ayn Rand explained a very interesting conundrum in American conservatism. She says, everyone thinks that conservatives are the natural defenders of capitalism. But actually, this is not the case. Because a consistent defense of capitalism, and this was the theme in many of yesterday's lectures, that the reason why the culture wars has been so, that the left had such an easy way kind of advancing in these culture wars is because there was no one in the other side. And there was no one being able to defend the status quo. But Rand explains this. She says, if you want to defend capitalism, you have to defend individualism, you have to defend reason, and you have to defend materialism. But this is a ground which is very uncomfortable for conservatives. Why? Because it goes against their religious beliefs. So Max Weber was actually wrong. Christianity and capitalism are not natural allies. Philosophically, they are incompatible. So what did this mean for conservatives? It means that they could not hope in being an ideological, political movement with clear principles. So therefore, they opted for doing something else. They opted for defending, quote, the American way of life. Now, this could mean whatever you want it to mean. But when you say the way of life of something, it means that you start leaning from the level of politics to the level of culture. And this is why the culture wars have been such a gift from heaven for the conservatives. Because it's a very fertile ground for a group that hasn't got strong political position, but has strong cultural positions. So don't let conservatives fool you in telling you that, oh, we find ourselves in the culture war and we have to fight. The culture wars is the only field that conservatives today can thrive. And actually, we saw this also happening with the left after the 1960s. 
that a focus in the field of culture or in the field of lifestyle, what did the other book I called lifestyle activism, is a sign that you have exhausted your ideas. It's a sign that a, a field of clear political program is not anymore for you. So what was the answer of the American right to the 1960s? They could do two things. They could defend the status quo from a, from a strong position that says, we're going to stand for reason, and we're going to stand for this industrial society that you hippies are attacking. But they were not intellectually equipped to do this. So they dropped the arms, and they ran in a different hill. And they said, we're going to die on this other hill because it's more convenient. And this is the hill of the culture wars. Because what they could do is they could mobilize the, the reinvented Christian ethics against the left. So their reaction to the irrationalism of the left was mostly things like religion and, and, uh, and the Christian values. However, conservatives have also been influenced from the 60s. So this is not the old religion which is rigid and which is a dogma with clear ideas. So you see many conservatives in the 70s using the slogan, I'm high on Jesus. So it's this kind of whatever kind of flowing culture, and conservatives also jump into this bandwagon. And this is why in the 70s and the 80s, you see the term moral majority. Moral majority means that we build a political movement based not so much on political ideas, but on moral ideas. And this worked for a while. So you had this weird coalition of evangelical Christians, of old type of William Buckley conservatives, but also these new technocrats, these new liberal pragmatists that later became known as the neoconservatives. And this worked for a while, which also had to do with how destructive the, the 60s and the 70s was for the morale of the United States, and also had to do with the, with the personal charisma of Ronald Reagan. And then it kept working for a while because we, it was the triumph of the victory in the Cold War. But under George H.W. Bush, when Soviet Union collapsed and this other was not anymore there to give meaning to American right, so this anti-communism was not anymore an issue, the American right was once again in search of a new story and once again in search of a new narrative. So the fire of the culture wars was already burning, but the official launching of the culture wars came in the most official occasion, the 1992 Republican Party Convention. There, you had a French candidate called Pat Buchanan, who delivered one of the speeches that proved to be one of the most famous 20th century conservative speeches. And it was what became known as the culture war speeches. There, Buchanan said, quote, this election is about much more than who gets what. It is about who we are. It is about what we believe. It is about what we stand for as Americans. It is a cultural war, as critical to the kind of a nation we will one day be as was the Cold War itself. So basically, the right is saying, we've won the Cold War, but now we need to, need to, to win the internal war, which is the culture war. Now, Buchanan lost the nomination to Bush, and he was never again very relevant politically. However, he was relevant in another way. Some years later, he, he wrote a book, which is one of these books with a very, very, very long American title. And the title is The Death of the West, Colon, 
How dying populations and immigrant invasions imperil our culture and civilization. Now, this book became, let's say, the go-to book for a whole new generation of conservatives who put forward the message which today is very popular around figures like Ann Coulter or Stefan Molyneux that says that demographics, it's des is, demographics is destiny. So United States is not anymore about ideas. United States is about the right kind of people who can support these ideas. And these ideas cannot be adopted by other kind of people, so to speak. Now, this was a very fringe part of conservatism. But fast forward in 2016, this was the idea behind the build the wall chants and behind the Trumpian narrative. In the meanwhile, we had the two administration of George W. Bush, and we had the fiasco in Iraq and also the financial crisis. So in 2008, there were many people in the conservative movement who were not happy with elite conservatism. And we have a very important moment. Uh, the two presidential campaigns in 2008 and 2012 by a guy who was a complete outsider and was called Ron Paul. And Ron Paul didn't win anything, but he gained unprecedented support from the ground up, from, from, from the grassroots. And this has shown something. This has shown that there are a lot of people around the conservative movement who just can't wait for an outsider to give something new, to give a new message. So after 2012, the biggest question among conservatives was, who's going to be the new Ron Paul in 2016? Who's going to be the guy who is going to provide this outsider's message? And at the same time, under the Obama administration, we have the Tea Party movement. We have a movement which, again, is based on on grassroots conservative mobilization and going all in in the culture wars. Journalist and writer Andrew Breitbart clarified something, though. He said, the enemy is not in the White House. You think it's in the White House, but actually the enemy is not there. The enemy is in universities, the enemy is in Hollywood, and the enemy is in the media. So he said, don't focus so much on elections, focus more on the culture wars. And he had this very famous saying that said that, Politics is downstream from culture. Of course, he forgot to add it, and culture is downstream from philosophy. So Andrew Breitbart died unexpectedly in 2012, but his message was already passed. And you have this new generation of conservatives, people like Ben Shapiro or Milo Yiannopoulos, who understand that they need to fight on the culture wars. And then you have Breitbart taken over by Steve Bannon, and now it's not only this countercultural, let's say, outlet, but also it becomes this tribalistic outlet. It, it brings this nativism of Buchanan in the center of the conservative movement. And then came Trump. And Trump is doing two things. The one thing, as an analyst of this new kind of right, Michael Miles calls, Trump says, I'm not going to bother with the Overton window. I'm not going to bother with kind of appeasing. I'm going to create my own Overton window, the Trump window. So Trump, in a way, is a moving and walking counterculture by himself. And this was very, very conscious. He understood that many people in the conservative movement wanted something completely new. And the more of an outsider he was, the better this would be for his campaign. That's why when he said, even if I shoot someone, I can get away with it, he meant it. And it was true. Now, someone who wrote a very interesting book 
not so interesting as my book is going to be. Uh, on tribalism, Amitsua, she asked a very interesting question. She says, how can you have so many working class people considering a billionaire who lives on a house of gold and who marries every other day like a top model, how could they see this guy as our guy? And she says, actually, Trump was their guy. He was their guy in the way he talked, in the, in, in the fast food he eats, and in the things that don't bother him. So Trump doesn't care too much about his carbon footprint. His base doesn't care too much about, his car about their carbon footprint. Trump does not patronize his base about how horrible sexes and races they are, and his bases enjoy this. So in a way, they are from a different class, but they share the same culture. And in this way, Trump is one of them. Now, Hillary Clinton called this bandwagon around Trump the deplorables, but I will call them the countercultural right. Because their emphasis, as I said many times, is on issues such as, for example, feminism, free speech, abortion, uh, the impact of immigration. So you're going to hear very little from Trump about economic policy. So one day he's for lower taxes, the other day he's for more protectionism. The one thing which is stable, though, and what thing, one thing that remains constant is the focus on culture. And what is their mode of attack? Provocations, trolling overt or covert racism, the memes, the doxing. And where does this come from? And again, Angela Nagel does a very good job in her book, Kill All Normies, to explain that. She says this is transgression for transgression's sake, but it is a transgression that is invited by the, by the status quo. Basically, the status quo has taught these kids that nothing is sacred, that everything goes, and they took this message seriously. And why, for example, they attack mostly feminism? And why do they want to be provocative in terms of race? Because these are the two holy cows. And since we are taught that you attack holy cows and that nothing is sacred, what do we attack? Feminism and political correctness. And actually, Milo Yiannopoulos put it very cynically. He said, we are not real racist. We are performative racists. <laughs> so this shows that this countercultural conservatism is a movement on the level of the spectacle. So when Guy Debord talk about attacking the society of the spectacle, his grandchild is Milo Yiannopoulos. Thus, here though lies the peculiarity of the counterculture. It is not really a counterculture. What it really is, is basically the ground troops of the establishment's ideas. These are monsters created by the established ideas. Because what do the established ideas tell us? What do the university teach us? They are telling us that identity is everything. They are telling us that you see yourself through the group. They are telling us that our environment conditions us. They are telling us that individualism and capitalism are soul-destroying, that we are vulnerable. And the alt-right takes this message and says, indeed. 20 years ago, there were many academics the so-called critical race studies, which they said there's a problem out there. There's a hegemonic narrative, there's a hegemonic discourse, which basically means a lot of people who don't think like us think something. And it says this hegemonic discourse is this, this weird idea of color blindness, that you see everyone as not belonging to race. But this critical race theory said 
race is very real. And actually, they said, we need to talk about white people. We need to talk about whiteness. And they said, whiteness is actually a moral danger. And the alt-right says, yes, let's talk about whiteness. Let's, let's rediscover what it means to be white. And this is what's very interesting in this new form of white nationalism. In a way, it's not white supremacy. It's white vulnerability. This is why you hear Richard Spencer, the leader of the alt-right, saying, we want safe spaces, and he, he uses this term, we want an ethno-state which is going to be a safe space. So he says, we recognize that Asians have higher IQ. We recognize that they're better in getting good jobs. Therefore, we need protection. Now, I think that because Spencer is very clever, I think he understands that vulnerability and this idea of, oh, please recognize our identity, is the currency that passes. And I think this is why he's following this tactic. Now, what would the real counterculture looks like? Perhaps the most revolutionary and truly radical idea today is the rediscovery of human agency and this idea that we are strong and robust and we can cope. Is there a hope for this idea? Now, irrespective of what we think about people like Jordan Peterson or people like the people who watch the Rubin Report or the Joe Rogan show, there is something there. I think that a lot of people who follow Peterson, irrespective of whether he's right or wrong, they do it because they see a glimpse of hope that someone at least tells me that I'm not a basket case or that even if I am a basket case, there is still hope. And I think the fact that such figures are labeled by the left as right wing and as conservatives show why the left is completely done. Because whatever is even remotely resembling of individual agency, they consider it as something reactionary and conservative. So please don't misunderstand my talk. The fact that I consider the right horrendous does not by any chance mean that the solution is on the left. But actually, the culture wars have offered us a huge service. They have shown us that both the right and the left share the same tribalist vision. They either despise freedom or they cannot understand freedom. And they see social engineering either by some enlightened elite in Brussels or by God Emperor Trump as the only salvation that we have against weak and vulnerable individuals. Therefore, to fight this kind of, tribali of tribalism, the first thing that we need to put forward is a worldview that sees individuals as able to cope and sees individuals as history makers. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Nikos Sotirakopoulos give the eighth lecture in this series, Culture Wars, Then and Now. We'll return next week with a lecture from Ben Cobley on tribes and the system of diversity that have come to dominate contemporary society. So don't forget to subscribe to this Ideas Matters podcast on your favourite feed. And if you can, we'd be grateful if you could leave a review which will help us get the word out about this series. For anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth, then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast. Or you can visit the Academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk. 
I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating Matters Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nestor Sherman who edited this podcast series. Thank you.